This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson alongside Alex Steele over in New York this Thursday, January, uh, June the 9th, January. What happened there? Oh, I don't uh, know. <laughs> it uh, reminds me of me earlier on I was television. about to say, this sounds familiar. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we, we're all kind of going back a little bit to uh, an earlier era. Um, Alex talking about being on Bloomberg Daybreak Americas earlier on today. Me talking about being in January. Uh, anyway, let's park that for the for the minute. Because um, we, Alex, we need to talk about what has been actually quite a consequential day. I think mm-hmm. um, European equity markets down down quite hard, um, but the real story has been in the bond market with peripheral spreads blowing out. So basically, the spread between German ten-year bonds and Italian ten-year bonds widening out really quite significantly today. The euro under pressure, and all of this because of Christine Lagarde, the president of the ECB. Yeah, and and I know that you could make light of the fact that their 2024 inflation forecast is just above 2% and 2.1. You could split hairs. But the point is, it's going to take a lot of work to get inflation down to even close to 2%. And I don't necessarily think anyone has any visibility or conviction to know what prices are going to be doing in 2024. Meaning, can they actually do what they're saying that they're doing without breaking something serious in the market? Well, that, that's the question that everybody's trying to figure out right now. So there's a couple of things I would say, one of which is clearly the ECB economists are struggling to get a handle on what is happening here. Because again, we've got some massive revisions in terms of rev- revised up inflation and revised down growth. So that's kind of the first thing to say. Then clearly, there was a lot of vagueness today on what happens if, for instance, Italian bonds versus German bonds blow out even further, i.e. the spread gets even wider. Still don't know what's going to happen there. Uh, we've got a rate uh, hike penciled in for July, 25 basis points. But we don't know what's going to happen in September. Could be 50, could be 25. There's a lot of moving mm-hmm. parts here. And to be honest, I think in some ways that's understandable. I don't think anybody's really got a clue as to what is happening out there right now. So much volatility around energy prices, so much volatility about food prices, so much uh, uncertainty around Ukraine more broadly. Um, So really difficult, I think, to predict what is going to be happening next. But the ECB's job is to get inflation back down to 2%. And it's going to be tough, folks. Yep. Good luck with that. Um, And it's also sort of what kind of spreads they can handle while they do that. And the market kind of really turned around. The the first thing you saw was like, okay, you're going to have a stronger euro. Okay, you're going to sell off in the bond market. They're going to be aggressive in terms of hikes. But then the real market action came when she's like, we're going to be looking into, you know, peripherals. We want this to all be equal. We can't have fragmentation. We don't really know what we're going to do with that yet, guys, but we're definitely working on it. And that's when the market really kind of took off. Yeah. I would have thought Italy by now would be kind of hoping that it wasn't peripheral anymore with Mario Draghi at the helm. But judging by today's price action, it certainly is. So we've been talking about Christine Lagarde. Let's hear from herself, her herself. Uh, This is what she was saying a little bit earlier during the press conference. The new staff projections foresee annual inflation at 6.8% in 22, before it is projected to decline to 3.5% in 23, and 2.1% in 24, higher than in the March projections. This means that headline inflation at the end of the projection horizon 
is projected to be slightly above our target. Inflation, excluding energy and food, is projected to average 3.3% in 22, 2.8% in 23, and 2.3% in 24, also above the March projections. That was Christine Lagarde speaking earlier uh, at her news conference. Let's dive into this a little bit more uh, and talk about this. Yana Rondo uh, joins us now, who's on ECB Watch. Um, Yana, what was your biggest takeaway from today? When you're listening to the press conference, what would you, you take away from it? Um, so the the most surprising thing for me, and I think for all uh, all uh, of the audience, was uh, the um, the precision uh, with which the ECB uh, outlined where it sees rates going in the in the coming uh, weeks. So. Um, the ECB uh, yeah, said it would hike rates by 25 basis points in uh, July. And uh, if uh, nothing improves on the inflation outlook, and that is very unlikely, then uh, there will be a, a, an even bigger hike um, coming in September of, of 50 basis points. So that was uh, quite a hawkish step, if you ask me. And uh, that was something that uh, some of the hawks might have uh, wanted to see, but that was uh, far from from a clear cut um, uh, decision or from 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 a very clear uh, result that could have been expected uh, going into this meeting. Yana, why is the ECB struggling? Why are the ECB's eco- ECB's economists struggling with what is happening in the economy right now? I, we've seen some huge revisions down on GDP. We've seen some huge revisions up on inflation. Yeah, I mean, certainly um, the, the revisions have been large, um, and essentially it comes down to energy. Um, Lagarde herself has said that that a, a lot of, of the revisions we've seen are actually really down to oil prices, to gas prices. Um, inflation is a lot stronger than expected, um, and uh, in fact, there is a footnote in the in the staff projections um, taking account of the latest uh, inflation print, the May inflation print, and it says that inflation is, is probably even going to be higher than what the uh, forecast that was just published um, is uh, is saying. So they're uh, they're preparing for an upward revision in September already now. Um, that you know puts in perspective the guidance we we got for the September rate hike. So that's almost inevitably going to be 50 basis points. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it obviously uh, what what is um, driving inflation is also depressing growth, uh, and the the GDP numbers um, are. are far from um, far from good. Yana, it feels like the bar for the 50 bips hike in September is super low. Is the bar for a 75 basis point hike or continued 50 basis point hike, where is that bar? I think 75 basis points is a bit of a stretch. Um, but we would have uh, thought the 50 was a stretch like a couple months ago. <laughs> we would have been like, you're crazy. Very true, very true. But I, I think um, for that to happen... Um, We'll have to see some serious uh, damage in the economy uh, on the on the inflation side. That is, so I, I I would say that is probably a bit far fetched for now. Um, as for where uh, interest rates are going after September, that's a very good question and a question I've tried to ask uh, a few of my sources um, earlier. And um, it, it looks like that is something that uh, is a discussion to be had in the future. Um, as as you know, we we've said the outlook is very very uncertain. Um, there is uh, another round of forecasts coming up in September. And I think um, 
the decision on, on where interest rates are moving in October, uh, in, in December, um, maybe yep. later on, uh, is something that, that can safely, uh, you know, wait until until the outlook clears a little bit. Jana, we've seen peripheral spreads. We've seen bond spreads, Germany to Italy in particular, blowing out today. Um, uh, I'm just going to check the exact numbers. Italy's trading 215 basis points over Germany now. If that continues to widen, do we actually have any real idea of what the ECB is going to talk about and do in that kind of a scenario? There's a lot of questions today, but a lot of answers on how exactly it is going to tackle fragmentation. Well, Lagarde had a line saying uh, we've proved in the past that we we know what to do. We can use old tools um, to to address any fragmentation that might occur. We can invent new tools if we have to. Um, so the so they haven't been very specific, and there's probably a reason to that because you do not want to tip off investors as to you know what your secret weapon to fight fragmentation will look like. Um, but it's probably a safe bet to say it's going to involve asset purchases in a flexible way, and if uh, it's enough to uh, use the uh, reinvestment program um, mm. under the pandemic program, that's what their preferred choice will be. If um, you know they need to do more, then they will need to do more. All right, Yana, thanks a lot. We really appreciate you breaking this down with us. Yana Rando uh, joining us there. Coming up, we're going to get uh, the economic reaction uh, from Peter Pret. He's a former chief ECB economist. Uh, we'll get his reaction on today's ECB meeting. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You are listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London, Alex Steele over in New York. Let's carry on the conversation about the European Central Bank. Uh, Christine Lagarde holding a press conference a little bit earlier on, watched very carefully by the ECB's former chief economist, Peter Pratt. Alex and I caught up with him a little bit earlier on to get his assessment of what happened today. I think in the projections you see a figure of 2.1%. So I think it's really trivial. You know, when you think of the, the range of forecasting, you know, errors, I mean, it's, it's really, you are at the objective. Now, when the staff does uh, their projections, they use basically uh, the market, you know, uh, interest rates, you know, project, you know, the future rates. And so you could, you could argue uh, that uh, what Christine Lagarde basically announced today is that she endorses basically market prices for the risk-free curve. Uh, so that means a hike, you know, a series of hikes of rates up to, I would say, 175, something like that, around 175. So it's, as she explained, it's a journey. It starts with 25. September very likely is going to be 50 basis points. But very importantly also, she, she, she said, you know, that beyond September, there will be further increase in interest rates. So all in all, I thought this uh, press conference on more on the hawkish side, with a small hawkish surprise, uh, not a big surprise. But really what, uh, what really annoys me uh, in the communication first is that uh, Christine Lagarde deviated actually from what she said in the block, you know, two and a half weeks ago, where she said, you know, the euro area is not in a situation of excess demand. And so if you use interest rate, you know, to compress what? To compress aggregate demand. Usually that's what you want to do. So I think that was not very clear, you know, what you try to achieve, you know, by this sequence of interest rate hikes. Uh, and what sort of excess demand are you dealing with? So I think that's that's something, you know, they, 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 they should clarify. The other thing is yep. that the more hawkish you are on rates, the more you should clarify, you know, the transmission, you know, to... 
via the spreads, you know, the country spreads. And that disappointed, I, would, I think, the markets. That's why you, you got this reaction. That was Peter Pret, chief economist, uh, former chief economist at the ECB, and and part of that question was really when it comes to the neutral rate guy because she even said we haven't talked about the neutral rate yet. I have a really hard time thinking that they haven't even talked about what the neutral rate is because that is going to determine whether or not financial policy is tight or not. Um, is neutral rate two? Is it one and a half? Is it one? And I was asking the question: How do they know how restrictive policy is if they don't know what the neutral rate is? Yeah, I Peter. In, in, in sort of, um, he's not a fan of the neutral rate. No, he was like, "That's he, stupid. No one cares." Yeah, yeah, stupid. Nobody cares. But we spent a lot of time talking about it. So the 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 view that I got today was, we're going to try things and see what happens, or at least that should be kind of where we're going with this. They pre-committed a little bit, but they're definitely on a on a new path here. But I just think with with the with the economy so hard to predict, finessing policy is going to be really difficult. But I think. Finessing policy is going to be difficult, but I think big picture, we are left with a situation where the ECB is clearly going to tighten policy. Mm-hmm. It is on a journey. It's going to be a gradual journey, but it is a journey that is going to see policy being tightened. And that hasn't happened for basically a decade in Europe. And I don't think yet we fully understand the implications yeah. of this. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see what what this all means, not in two weeks' time, not in two months' time, but in two years' time. Well, also, I think that we need to, we don't have any idea what quantitative tightening is going to wind up looking like. Um, I mean, they're still buying bonds, right? In three weeks, yeah, so the, the, they're going to stop. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, the, 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 they're buying. Excited, they're guys. stopping buying bonds, but they are going to, but they are going to be reinvesting still. Right. So, what happens when they? First of all. Reinvesting does that have an effect? When they stop reinvesting, what does that look yep. like? As they shift to having to deal with the fragmentation issue, what does that look like in relation to also not reinvestment? I mean, there's like so many different layers, and that's going to have a much more medium-term um, uh, yeah. effect. The law of unintended consequences are definitely going to be a play here. But I tell you one thing: mm-hmm. bond buying by the ECB has suppressed volatility in a number of different asset classes. Yep. Over the last ten years, we are now removing. That buffer, so volatility. In theory, the yeah, exactly the amplitude of these moves. In theory, should get bigger, which is going to be fascinating to watch. This is Bloomberg. This is the cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. The overall burden of taxation is now very high, and sooner or later, and I would much rather it was sooner than later, that burden must come down. It's an aberration, the burden of tax caused in no small part by the fiscal meteorite of COVID. And it must come down because the answer to the current economic predicament is not more tax and more spending. The answer is economic growth. And you can't spend your way out of inflation and you can't tax your way into growth. Boris Johnson, speaking in Blackpool a little bit earlier on up in Lancashire, um, the Prime Minister delivering a speech which he hoped would be a major set piece, a major reset in terms of the objective of his government, to focus on the economy. It was meandering, let's put it that way, in terms of what we got. Um, There was a focus on housing. There was a focus on the cost of living squeeze. There was a focus on taxation. Did it feel well thought out? Difficult to say, I think, at this point, in terms of getting a true understanding uh, as to whether or not this represents a kind of big pivot 
in economic policy. Joining us now, Bloomberg's UK politics reporter, Ellen Milligan. Ellen, what did you make of this speech? How focused was it? Well, I, I, I agree with what you said about it, it was meandering for about 20 minutes. Um, Johnson didn't really announce any policy. It was all about big ideas, about t- cutting taxes, cutting spending, ideas that really go um, to the Conservative Party base which is trying to get back on side after narrowly scraping through a confidence vote on Monday. Um, as I said, it took about 20 minutes to get any to any hard policy, which was this announcement on uh, unlocking home ownership, um, uh, which it, it took a while for him to get to, but he got there in the end. Um, it, were, it was lacking in big policy, and what he really needs to do now is he's promised his own MPs, he's promised his voters, um, that he's going to boost the economy. He's got a great package of policies coming down the road. And -hmm. really, he's got to put his money where his mouth is. Well, let's just say he comes across an amazing package. And it's going to be awesome. It's like the best thing anyone's ever seen. Is he actually going to have the support within the Tory party to get it through? Or is he just basically paying lip service and then it becomes, in essence, a blame game on who is not letting policy get through? Well, it it depends on the policy. And I've been speaking to loads of MPs and commentators since this confidence vote on Monday. And a lot of them don't actually uh, think that any policy or package of policies is going to fix um, Johnson's problems with his own party at the moment. And that's because, and and we've explained on here before, that this... um, these 41% of MPs who voted against him on Monday are from all sides of the party. They're Brexiteers, they're Remainers, um, they're on the left and the right of the party. Um, and so one policy or one package of policy is unlikely to unite them. Um, and really, this is a leadership and a personality issue. And so what he's got to prove is, yes, of course, he's got to prove that he's good on the economy. This is um, the Conservative Party's darling is the, is the economy. And we're um, facing rising inflation and a cost of living crisis. But he's also got to prove that he's trustworthy. And that trust comes from announcing policies and achieving them rather than just big promises. So where does that leave the triggering of Article 16? <laughs> well, I, they're not going to trigger Article 16. They're going to go beyond that guy. Um, they are on the cusp of um, announcing or presenting legislation that, that will override the Northern Ireland uh, protocol, large parts of it. Um, that's now expected uh, next week. It was meant to be this week. Um, there's been delays and dithering. Um, over it for a number of reasons, which also risks um, angering Tory rebels who are on the Brexit supporting wing of the party who just want this done. Then it risks, it risks angering um, by presenting this. The more um, Remain wing of the party, Tobias Elwood, the other day calling for, um, suggesting that the UK should rejoin the EU single market. So there's a real um, uh, disparity between MPs on this. Um, and this is going to be yet another divisive policy that could strike to the heart of that Tory base that launched him into power, the Brexit supporting base, but also angers the more traditional Conservative voters in the southern parts of the UK who maybe voted to remain. And then the, the other obvious thing is it's going to really anger the EU. Um, 
can Boris Johnson actually tackle the cost of living increase and also rip up the Northern Ireland Protocol? Can he can he do both, or does he need to pick? Well, his party will say that this won't impact the economy. Actually, they're helping businesses, um, especially in Great Britain, who trade with Northern Ireland, who are facing these burdensome checks on the Irish Sea border. Um, on the other hand, yeah, it, it, it will. If there's if there's any kind of retaliation from the EU, and there probably will be. Um, it really risks adding to inflation, um, any kind of um, impact on trade. It really, it really is going to be burdensome, and it's something that doesn't seem thought out from the government at the moment. Um, they're in denial about that. So, where does that leave Boris Johnson, and where does it leave his future? Um, what is your like, what is your perception in Westminster as to where things go from here? Does his career, as he suggests, have a still a long way to go? Or is there going to be a more short-term ending of that career? Well, the mood in Westminster is, is one of misery, really. I mean, he's, he's won this um, vote um, by quite a narrow majority. Um, the, re- the rebels, uh, the ones who voted against him, um, are trying to war game how, how they oust him. Um, and then his supporters are also quite miserable because what it, what is left is his party yeah. still massively divided and mm-hmm. torn over over different different areas. And so in the long in the short term, I don't think he's going anywhere. He's focusing on his agenda. Yeah. Um, I do not envy your job, Ellen Milligan. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, uh, Bloomberg UK politics reporter. Uh, coming up, we'll have reaction on the market front uh, to the ECB shaking up the market and the rate decision uh, today, and the forecast of rate decisions uh, from Christine Lagarde. This is Bloomberg. This is the Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Listening to the Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson uh, joins us over in London. Let's just take a quick uh, check in here on U.S. equities. Overall, trading a little bit heavy. The S&P right around the lows of the session, down by about four tenths of one percent. Bond yields moving modestly higher. I'm not making too much of the U.S. action. We have U.S. CPI coming out tomorrow at 8.30. Plus, we're really just following the ECB and those higher yields rolling over a bit. Two things I wanted to point out. The worst performing stocks, though, within the S&P are Carnival, Norwegian, Las Vegas Sands, Wind Resorts, Royal Caribbean. Part of that was a downgrade from Morgan Stanley on the cruise guys yesterday. But I also just wanted to flag it because those have been the stocks that have really been performing well as the reopening trade still got le- still was having some more legs. Now we're just taking a little bit of shine off of that trade. On the flip side, NXP Semis is the best performing stock in the S&P, up by 6%. And guy, I'm interested in this because of what it meant for Intel over the last couple of days. Tuesday, you had Intel talking about the challenging macro environment. Um, NXP, though, yesterday was talking about how things were strong. And I'm trying to get a read, Guy, if this chip story is indeed cyclical and will we have sort of price pressures come off a bit, or is it a company idiosyncratic story, people just buying different stuff? Yeah. Um, it, it, you, it could be just a bit of both, to be honest. You could find yourself in a situation where you are starting to see the cycle reasserting itself, and chips are notoriously cyclical. We've been mm-hmm. through a period, obviously, where we've seen significant shortages. And as we start to see some of those supply bottlenecks easing up a little bit, 
you may start to see that combined with a slowing economy just hitting different parts of the market a little earlier. Some bits are going to be hit a little bit later. So it could just be a mix issue. It could just be a product issue here. Ultimately, it is a cyclical story developing. Maybe Intel's just feeling it first. Yeah, and then if that's the case, then maybe Kathy Wood of ARC is right and that we're still in a disinflationary environment longer term. Um, she used the inventory issue, that how retailers are talking about how they have too much inventory. If That's just sort of the beginning of the price pressures um, kind of coming off. Anyway, that's what I'm really focused on here in the U.S. and that interesting as it comes right before the CPI number tomorrow. But let's be honest, the action's over in Europe today. Rarely do I ever say that. Oi. The action's Oi? always over here in Europe. We about? see all the action. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, well, some of the time. Um, I'd like to bring up things like Brexit. In fact, I don't really want to bring up he Brexit. But there's been plenty of action over mm-hmm. here in Europe. I'm not having Alex Steele disparaging us to that extent. But yeah, I take your point. Normally, uh, or certainly recently, a lot of the action, particularly from the market's point of view, has been US focused. The focus has been on the Fed because the Fed has been front and center. It has been changing global markets and has been increasing the value of the dollar. It's seen interest rates rise. Uh, It has seen a slowdown in, therefore, global markets, uh, which may have started in the States, but certainly have ricocheted around the world at a fairly rapid rate. But now the ECB is starting to get in on the action. We are in the early stages, the early innings uh, of what the ECB is likely to deliver. But we are now almost certainly going to get a rate hike from the ECB, 25 basis points uh, in July. To try and analyse what this kind of all means and how we should think about this, uh, earlier Alex and I spoke to one of the smartest people I know in global markets, Karen Karanol Tambor, co-head of sustainability over at Bridgewater, the huge fund uh, run by Ray Dalio. Um, We started basically by talking about what is going to happen with this kind of mix between growth and inflation. Central banks, and the ECB in particular, have a focus on inflation. The ECB needs to get inflation back down to 2%. Is that going to be possible? Well, let's take a listen to Karen's view on this. I don't think with the amount of tightening that is currently priced in, we can get to 2% inflation. And so markets are starting to process the tightening is going to be necessary. Europe is finally getting you know, the same type of market action that we got in the United States as the Fed was tightening, which is all assets are falling. Bonds and stocks fall at the same time. You don't get any diversification across the two of them because inflation and the need to tighten is the driver. And when that happens, you know, you are trying to slow what is a very strong economy to cool inflation. But if you look at actually the amount of tightening that is currently expected, it's still not that significant relative to the strength in economies, relative to the self-sustaining momentum in inflation. So will it slow the economy? Yes. But will it be sufficient yep. to get central banks back to their goal? No. Karen, isn't this the compromise we're going to have to live with, though? Nobody wants a recession. Nobody wants a significant slowdown that probably would be required to get inflation back to target. So we accept inflation in the 3 to 4% range, but we don't get the aggressive recession that would come with 2%. Isn't that the compromise we're now dealing with? I think you're exactly right, Guy. This is why it's really not easy to be in the shoes of policymakers right now. They're going to have to choose whether to make that trade-off, and it's really not an easy trade-off to make because you don't want to let inflation get out of control, and at the same time, it is painful to have the economy slow because of tightening. And it's especially painful if you're in Europe, and part of the reason you're getting inflation are things like energy and food prices that you don't produce. And so it's this inflation that's particularly painful, and you have to slow your economy if you literally just can't get enough 
energy to power it. And so we know from the 70s that central banks faced in that situation really prefer not to over-tighten because it's painful. And the more it's external, the more it's geopolitical, the more it's, you're not the producer making money from the inflation, the more painful it is. But we also know from the 70s that they can be behind for many, many years and it can get out of control. I think reasonable policymakers are going to disagree about what to do here. Mm -hmm. But the risk is that they fall behind and they're so scared to crack the economy, which is right now at such strong levels that uh, they just go too slow. That was Karen uh, Carnell-Tambor, a co-CIO of sustainability at Bridgewater Associates. Um, Guy, what was interesting, though, is trying to pin her down on where you do want to put your money. Because there's yeah. lots of places <laughs> that she was like, let's not put your money pretty much anywhere. Um, we did talk a little bit about emerging markets, um, and she made an interesting point that there hasn't been a lot of money put into emerging markets in an era of high liquidity. It went to things like tech and crypto, so there could be some room there along with higher rates. But other than that, you kind of leave feeling like, wow, this, this sucks. <laughs> yeah, she didn't like a lot. Uh, no. um, and what, so so to, to try and rile Alex a little bit here, she also said that you don't want to be in commodities, because basically... We are now in a stagflationary environment. And while the inflationary environment has been good for commodities, the stagflationary environment will not be. I, you're going to have high inflation, but you're going to have slowing growth. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to get my head around exactly kind of how this is going to work through in the commodity space, because it's going to be, I think, you, you're going to have to be much more granular in terms of the commodities you pick. But, but she's basically saying even the commodities which have had a great run and have been an inflation hedge, a fantastic inflation hedge thus far, even they may not perform. Yeah, in which case, like, how do you pick up any kind of yield um, in any well, I, environment over Any kind of yield, like, any kind of outperformance. Like, I, where was, are you getting it? Like, are you she, looking? She, yeah, she did talk about linkers. Mm -hmm. So basically, said one of the safe trades will be you basically just buy a linker, which is a government linked bond linked to the rate of inflation, which will pay you whatever inflation is. And if you believe that there is an upside to inflation versus market expectations from here, then in theory, that could still be a good trade. Yeah, that's like kind of it. And like maybe some EM. <laughs> um, but I think it does move it, into it, a gun. It, yeah, it, but, it, but it just highlights the paucity of options there are out there. Well, that's what I was going to say. And, and then also, how do you hide out in an increase of volatility? Because if what you were saying earlier plays out, that the Fed's already ha had this paradigm shift, and what happened? Volatility went bananas. I mean, not the actual VIX, but volatility across assets went crazy. And is that now what we're going to see uh, over in Europe as they change? In which case, like, literally, what do you, is it cash? I mean, I know cash is going to get hurt because of inflation, but like, is that just the safest place? And then you deploy it uh, as you go? I don't know. It didn't make it me is. feel good after we talked to her. <laughs> It did or it didn't? It did not. I love her, but I, I felt a little bit. No, bummed. no. Yeah, she's one of the smartest people I know, as I yeah. said. But but the fact that the smartest person I know is struggling at the moment to find good investment options is is concerning. I would say. Um, this is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson's over in London. So the whole theme of the show has really been about how central banks manage inflation. And the reason why it's so complicated is because so much of that inflation is in commodities. And that's not something that the central banks have control over. But it may also not be necessarily transitory. It may be a structural shift that we're seeing within different commodities that has no easy answer. So Guy and I caught up with Francisco Blanche. He's Bank of America's head of global commodities. And we talked about the different factors of supply and demand uh, when it came to commodities. And he's really pessimistic that we're going to solve this problem anytime soon. 
the crisis in the oil market hasn't arrived yet. Um, and I don't say that lightly because I think we've been in a, in a massive global gas and power crisis for the last um, 18 months or so uh, with prices of natural gas in, in Europe being close to $500 per barrel of oil equivalent, right? Um, and we've also seen recently, because of all the disruptions created with, with Russia, um, thermal coal prices rising to $100 a barrel of oil equivalent. So when essentially sand or dirt on a, on a barge is trading at $100 a barrel, mm -hmm. you look at oil at 120 doesn't seem that expensive. Um, so I think we are uh, not at the peak yet. Uh, the pressure is going to continue. Um, but the one thing I'll say is that despite all the pain that we're seeing at the pump in this country, um, the U.S. is so much better off than everybody else. Because remember, we have record, uh, record dollar values, meaning we have an incredibly strong dollar um, with strong commodity prices, which means the pain at the pump in Europe and Asia and everywhere else is way, way worse. So that's, that's a big issue. So I think, I think we're going to get some demand destruction. We're getting, we're getting some demand destruction. Yep. Um, but, uh, but, but again, prices have to do a lot of work because we don't have the supply. Francisco Blanche talking to Alex and I a little bit earlier on. There's a lot of concern in the States about gasoline prices. There's a lot of concern that you're paying five bucks a barrel, no, five bucks a gallon. Honestly, I don't know what you're complaining about. Well, to be fair, in California, it's almost $9 a gallon. Ooh. So. I'm shocked. I'm just saying. Like, they have some they have some extra special It's 100 problems. pounds now to fill up the average, no, I know. average car it, here in the UK. It, it's really crazy. And that was Francisco's whole point, is that all of this will need to be solved through demand. You cannot solve it on the supply side. And he was yep. saying the same thing when it comes to commodities also, um, in sort of ags and stuff like that. It has to be on the demand side. And that means demand destruction. And that's why Goldman came out with a note today that I think they were saying 150, maybe 140 yep. was going to be Brent because that's the only way you're going to get the appropriate demand destruction. But I don't, what so does that look like? We all stay home and never leave? Like, I what is it? Driving, driving is going to be really expensive. Oh. And it's going to and it's going to stay like that for a while. It's going to be interesting to see how that changes behavior patterns. But it's going to be interesting to see ultimately where it next shows up. It was interesting he was highlighting the fact that you can see jet fuel continuing to climb, uh, particularly as Asia comes back, particularly as China comes yeah. back. Um, but this does come back in some ways to the ECB conversation. The, the, the kind of the annoyance that we heard from Peter Pratt earlier was that Christina Guard is not admitting that we have an aggregate demand problem, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. we basically need to slow the economy down. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the ways that that is going to happen is going to be high commodity prices. Basically, you need to raise the cost of everything mm -hmm. so that the economy slows down. And she, the ECB needs to admit that. Well, I think every central bank needs to admit that. I mean, we're well, talking no, the about Fed to, the Fed has. But the Fed still, I think, I, like a couple weeks ago, we were saying could have been clear just to basically say we need demand destruction, period. We are going to hike until people stop buying stuff. Yeah, until it hurts. Basically, hike until it hurts. Yeah. That's now the strategy. The ECB is nowhere near saying that at this point. But ultimately, Peter Pratt thinks that's where it's going to have to go. Yeah. Um, and and that, is, that is something that consumers and businesses well, have yet to get their arms around. Well, also, I wonder how different it looks like in Europe in that. Um, are, there, are factories going to have to shut down? Are there going to be power well, outages rationing, and rolling? Yeah. There's going to be there's, rationing in yeah. a different way than here in the U.S. We're much get, more energy efficient. That, that's a whole different growth issue, a whole different bag oh, of chips. Yeah. That that and that's gonna and that's maybe why 
there needs to be some flexibility built into this kind of rate hiking cycle. Right? You get to September, October, do you want to be hiking 50 basis points if you're Christine Lagarde? Well, we'll wait and see. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome back. You're listening to The Cable, 48 minutes past the hour. Let's look ahead to tomorrow. Um, today, we dealt with the ECB. Tomorrow, we're going to be dealing with inflation data out of the United States, CPI data to be exact. Uh, and what are we expecting? I look at my Bloomberg screen. Uh, at a headline level month on month, we're expecting inflation to pick up uh, at a rate of 0.7%. That's versus a prior number of 03 It's going to be interesting to see what the revisions look like. The core number, though, is expected to slow a bit. Now, this takes the uh, the headline year-on-year number to 8.3% in the United States, and the core number to 5.9%. So the, the, the core number is going to slow down a bit. The headline number is going to stay roughly the same. How will the bond market react if that is the data that is delivered? And these are only estimates, I say. Well, let's bring in Bloomberg's chief rate strategist, Ira Jersey. Ira, what are you looking for? What's the market looking for? Yeah, so, so what I'm looking for is I want to see some of these low volatility sectors that, um, that, that we've identified within the core CPI numbers start to roll over because if we don't get a significant rollover in some of the slower moving sectors in terms of prices, um, we're going to wind up having inflation that's over 3% for a very long time, and, and that's going to keep the Fed more hawkish. So, um, so that's what I'll be looking for. I, I do think that if we get a number that's even just a little bit higher than expectations, um, in, uh, in the core measures in particular, um, I do think we'll see a continuation of the uh, bear flattening that you're seeing in the market today. Um, going back to those low volatility uh, sectors, uh, prices, what are they and what kind of rollover are you looking at? Yeah, so, so housing is the big one, but th- there's a lot of other um, sectors within that, like furnishings and, um, and uh, s- some, of the, um, some of the good sectors that, that tend to um, you know, kind of move around between the, the, the medium and um, low volatility buckets. So, so those are the types of, um, of sectors that we're looking at. Um, services in general, has, in, in the past, has tended to be lower volatility, but that's changed a bit over the last year. Um, you know, primarily because as things have reopened, you've seen significant price moves in, in some of those sectors, like leisure and hospitality in particular. So, um, so as you get these, you know, significantly higher uh, prices in some of those sectors, um, you, you, you see them moving into, you know, from lower volatility to higher volatility. But, yeah, so housing, housing and, and certain good sectors are the big ones. Is this going to be the number that shakes the bond market, the U.S. 10-year in particular, either – significantly away from or significantly above, i.e. below or above the 3% mark. We can't make up our mind which way we want to go on this. Yeah, so I, th- I think that we're likely to stay kind of here. I, I think we were actually making a range that might um, be here for a while in the 10-year uh, sector in particular, um, somewhere between, say, t- call it 280 to 325. Uh, the reason being that, that over time, you know, even if we wind up getting slightly higher terminal Fed funds rate, so let's say the Fed funds rate winds up being, you know, 4% instead of, um, I- instead of uh, 35 like the market's currently pricing, you could, you're going 
going at some point you're going to see the Federal Reserve cut interest rates significantly. So mm-hmm. the 10-year is going to price for both the short-term interest rates to go up and then go down, and they might go down quite a lot. So, so I think at least for the next couple of months, um, until we get more data, uh, 325-ish might be the the high that we see for the 10-year. So, and that's basically the bear flattening that you were just talking about. So I guess the reverse question is, how high does the two-year then go if we're going to be re-rating <laughs> for a stronger Fed and then weaker growth later? Yeah, so I'm looking for for the the two year to uh, to to be higher than three and a, three and a quarter percent by year end, probably closer to three and a half. And and that's, the two year that's really high. Well, it's it's another seventy five basis points. But if the Fed's going to hike, as I suspect, maybe a little bit more than the market's currently pricing, say to four four and a quarter percent, which is you know high vis a vis the last cycle, but it's not you know high high. Um, but if but if they end up doing that, then the two year will end up, you know, needing to reprice up toward those kind of three and a half ish levels. Because again, like even the two year is going to say, okay, if they hike to four at four percent next year, at some point in twenty twenty four they might be cutting, right? And and as that occurs, um, then then the market has to price for both the up and the down just because of the yeah. way that these instruments, you know, are, are mature over time. They don't mature just today. All right. Is the Fed trying to get inflation down to two percent? And does the market believe that in the near term that's possible? Well, the market definitely doesn't believe that. In fact, we're, we're talking about if you look at one-year, one-year um, inflation swaps, so what, what uh, the inflation swaps are pricing for year-on-year inflation to be a year from now, we're talking about uh, over, still over 3%, about 3.4%. Um, so we're not looking for a glide path that's particularly steep getting back to 2%. Um, you know, the Fed wants to. I mean, that's their target, but it just doesn't seem that that's feasible at least over the next 18 months or so. So, you know, whether or not, um, and, and quite frankly, and I've been saying this, you know, pretty much all year, that the only way that the Federal Reserve is going to get those kind of 2 percentage inflation numbers is going to be to push us into a recession. And I think to do that at this point, given the strength of, of some sectors of the economy, mm-hmm. they will have to hike up toward 4%. Uh, yeah, and that's what we've been talking about with the ECB all day, too. Like, you're just going to have to destroy demand, and that's just the deal. Um, what happens to the overall equity market? I know you're the rates guy, but but if we get three and a half uh, on the front end, you know already I feel like equities cannot handle just the round number of three percent on the ten year. Yeah, so so uh, equities tend to be pretty uh, sensitive to real yields. So as real yields go up, so you look at like ten year real yields now at twenty five thirty basis points, not particularly high, but if those go up to sixty seventy five basis points on the idea that you're going to get less inflation in the future, but higher. Um, higher real yields, and, and that means tighter financial conditions, then risk assets in general, whether that be credit or mortgages or, um, yeah, or equities, should underperform um, you know, reasonably, um, reasonably strongly. And, and that's another reason to think that maybe the long end of the Treasury curve will remain supported, right? Because if we wind up having additional um, weakness in equities or, yeah. and credit, people will rotate out of that and into Treasuries. Yeah. Do we care about tomorrow's number? Should we care about the PCE more? Because that's what the Fed looks at. Is tomorrow a bit of a red herring? Well, it's it's both. Um, yeah, you know, the the thing that the PCE does better than CPI is it, it takes into account substitution effects of prices. So we have to remember that that the price, um, the actual price numbers that are used in CPI are also used in PCE, yeah. just reweighted. Um, so so I think you do have to use both. The reason why why we pay attention to CPI is because they're used in the tips market, right? <laughs> so so we can actually trade CPI. We can't trade PCE at this point. Way to like sell it. Is tomorrow going to be boring? Definitely tune in, though.
it won't be boring. Ira, thanks a lot. Ira Jersey, Bloomberg Intelligence, U.S. Rate Strategist. That's the main event for tomorrow, the U.S. Uh, CPI. That'll happen at 8.30 a.m. Eastern Time, and we will carry that for you uh, throughout the cable. I hope you enjoyed the show. We'll see you tomorrow. This is Bloomberg.